0: Welcome to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. My name is Jeanette Cockroft and I'm the host of this channel. Today, I'll be talking with Alicia Gutierrez Romine, who is the author of From Back Alley to the Border, Criminal Abortions in California from 1920 to 1969. Please welcome Alicia the program. Thank you for having me. Oh, welcome. Now, um, why don't we start with a little bit about
1: you. Tell us something about you. So, I am a Southern California native, and I have, I guess, grown up and lived in Southern California, Inland Empire, Los Angeles County for all of my life. I did my doctorate degree at the University of Southern California, and this book is based on my doctoral dissertation, and I am currently an associate professor of history. That's really exciting.
0: So tell us a little bit more about how you came to write this
1: book, how this became your dissertation topic. So I was always interested in medical history. Um, when I was an undergraduate, my my research was on Nazi Germany and the Holocaust and medical experimentation in the concentration camps. And eventually, that kind of moved to the eugenics movement. And so when I started graduate school, I wanted to do California history. I wanted to learn about California eugenics. And as I started working on The dissertation, the research, it kind of morphed a little bit into medical history, um, professional medicine in Southern California. And so I thought I was going to do something in that realm, looking at professional physicians and maybe race, maybe gender in Southern California. And I didn't really kind of have a bigger sense of, of what I was going to do other than that. I feel like so many other people look or sounds like they know exactly what they're going to do in graduate school for their doctoral research. And so I felt confident that everyone had a plan except me and I was kind of floating in the wind. <laughs> now I know that's not the case. Everyone is really good at at deceiving. Yeah. But um, so I, I went to the, the California State Archives and I was looking at the Board of Medical Examiner's records and I thought I would find maybe some drama in there. I was looking at physician license revocation files, and I had an assumption that I would find more people of color in there, more women in there. And so that was kind of my, my starting question or, or interest. And what I ended up finding is a lot of people getting their medical licenses revoked for performing illegal operations. And I didn't really know what that meant. And as I was kind of going through the documents, you know, my initial impression is a physician is going to give you a surgery that you need. So what makes this particular one illegal or criminal? And eventually I realized that illegal operation was a euphemism for abortion. And then it just kind of became really interesting and fascinating. I am a millennial. I have always, you know, grown up in the wake of Roe, so I've never really considered what life was like before that. And suddenly I had all of these documents that that were leading me to ask questions, like why would these physicians perform abortions if they were illegal? And by the end of my first day in the archive, I found a document about the Pacific Coast Abortion Ring, which is the subject of, of one of my main chapters. And they were this you know, black market criminal organization, and they provided illegal abortions. They were pretty safe. And they were making the modern day equivalent of millions of dollars per month. So once I found out about that, it was like the archivists were trying to kick me out get out, you know, if it's, you know, 430 or five o'clock, whatever it was. And I was walking back to my hotel room. I, I emailed my dissertation advisor and I asked him, you know, have you ever heard of the Pacific Coast Abortion Ring? They were headquartered in L.A. in the 1930s. And before I had even made it back to my room, he emailed me back and he said, I have never heard about this before. You need to find out everything you can. And that was it. So I just immediately kind of pivoted. And this was the topic. And so when I went into the archives the very next day, that was my focus. I had one singular focus. It was finding out everything I could about illegal abortions.
0: It's always a very exciting journey, <laughs> isn't it? Um, let's talk first about um, some historical context for abortion. Uh, It's—I know it's not the focus, but I think it's interesting. So, what specifically? Well, um, in the early part of the 20th century, the the reference to criminal or illegal abortions? What is
1: that about? So the book begins in the 1920s. And, you know, when I started working on this project and you know, the Pacific Coast Abortion Ring was my, my entry point, it reminded me of an L.A. Noir story. And so I think that that was kind of the framing that I wanted to go with. Leslie Reagan has uh, this wonderful work about when abortion was a crime and she looks at the late 19th through early 20th century. So I didn't really want to deal with with the late 19th century. I, I wanted this to kind of be an LA story, uh LA Noir, LA as a city. So I, I I guess by default kind of imagined starting with the 20s, and that's when most of these documents were from. So at this time, abortions were illegal. However, pretty much every state that had a law against abortion also had an exception. So a physician was able to perform an abortion if it was necessary to save a woman's life. But what we end up seeing in, and this is evident in those those documents in the Board of Medical Examiner's records, is that physicians were performing them even if it was for reasons that were not necessarily to save a woman's life. And so what I thought was immediately interesting is that when we're looking at providers of illegal abortions, we have a tendency to think of like the back alley butcher, this kind of nefarious character who is unskilled, untrained, and that wasn't always the case. There's many physicians and medical professionals and people who maybe don't have actual medical training but who have specialized in the procedure who are providing abortions and so it really is this broad spectrum of people who kind of fit under this banner and it could be this nefarious character but it could also be a trained medical professional and this person is just doing this abortion for an illegal reason because They want to stay in their patients good graces or during the depression they want a little bit of extra income to continue coming in and so when we're looking at the 1920s and particularly in the book we start with kind of both of these characters we do have the nefarious kind of character to start the book this person who is um you know an identity thief who is a fraudulent medical professional and and then we do go into looking at trained medical professionals who provide the procedure as well. And so all of this kind of falls under the banner of illegal abortion and it doesn't really mean anything about the the quality of care or about the type of provider. It's more about the circumstances or conditions that are giving rise to this particular abortion. That's what makes an abortion illegal.
0: Why Why are they doing these just to stay in the good graces of uh, longstanding patients, or is there something else going on?
1: I think for some, we, we do see that, particularly if the patient is well-to-do and the um, they want to continue to provide services for this woman, she would also probably be the gatekeeper of who treats their children or her husband or any other family members. And so since the categories defining what was illegal abortion were really ambiguous before the, uh, since the categories defining what was illegal abortion Since the categories defining what was a legal abortion were so ambiguous, what we can see is that physicians had a lot of trust at first. Um, Most of these procedures before the 1950s are taking place in private medical offices. So there isn't really much oversight if a physician believes an abortion is necessary for whatever reasons they're not really going to have to deal with any oversight or issues unless there are some complications with this procedure. And so there isn't like a a checklist or a reporting agency that these physicians have to turn to until we get into really the, the 1950s and 60s. That's when most of these abortions are moving into hospitals. That's when we're getting oversight. And that's when some of these criteria are becoming subject to scrutiny. So who's getting these abortions in the early part of the
0: century in particular?
1: Women from all walks of life, from all you know, social status, all races, all ethnicities. The book does primarily focus on the experiences of, of white women and it it does attempt to look at some of the experiences of Black women. Um, even though I talk about the border, I don't really talk about the experiences of Mexican women or Latinas, uh, which is something that, you know, in another life, I would have loved to have had the time to go into. But I suppose I will leave that for, for another researcher in the future. Um, but overwhelmingly, I'm looking at at white women, and some of them are are kind of middle class, how we would define middle class. But there are also some who are maybe not quite as wealthy. And usually this determines the quality of care that they are able to to receive. Um, If a woman has more capital or resources, she's more likely to be able to get her licensed physician to actually perform the procedure. But if a woman is poorer or low income, she's often at the mercy of whatever she can find, and that may not always be the most skilled or reputable provider. So how do
0: state authorities find out about these um, abortions?
1: So what's really interesting is that safe illegal abortions are pretty much invisible from the historical record. Um, There's a lot of stigma then, uh, even today, about abortions. And so many of these women who have safe, illegal abortions, they just kind of move on with their life and they don't say anything. And if one of the women in their orbit needs um, a similar service, they might provide a name or a recommendation of where to go. But they're largely absent from the historical record. And so my research, in some ways, perpetuates the idea that illegal abortions are dangerous because many of the sources that I have to rely on are coroner's records or death inquiries, um, newspaper articles that are sensational, um, because those are the illegal abortions we hear about. And it it's a subset of the illegal abortions that are taking place. They are not representative of most of the illegal abortions that are taking place, but because of social pressures and stigma, gender ideologies, we don't hear very much about the safe ones. So if a woman becomes ill, if she dies, then that's usually when um, people become aware that an illegal abortion has taken place.
0: Um, that's I always find that very interesting.
1: Um, who is Dr. Matthew Marmillion Dr. Matthew Marmillion was an African-American physician in Los Angeles, and he was a trained medical professional. He went to medical school. He was born and raised in Louisiana, and he came to L.A. in the 1930s. He was considered a, a stand-up member of his community, and he became one of these physicians I, I speak about who was involved in a fatal abortion case. So, in his case, it was a young woman. Uh, she was 18 years old who approached him for an abortion. And what is kind of, I think, complicated about this, and and I don't know that I, I articulate it well enough in the book, is that there is some uncertainty as to what actually happens. You have some back and forth over who is at fault or who is to blame, but. Dr. Marmilliad is eventually uh, found guilty of performing a criminal operation upon her. Um, the other potential is that her um, medical uh, medical student boyfriend uh, was the one who performed the procedure and that they, they came to Dr. Marmillion after she was already becoming ill. But Dr. Marmillion was convicted, and he was sent to San Quentin, where he ended up serving, I believe, about 10 to 13 years in prison before he was eventually released.
0: As a Black physician, did he suffer the same legal
1: consequences that white physicians would have suffered? And so that's a really interesting question. And so when I actually presented at some conferences I've actually compared the case of Dr. Marmillian with another case in the book, uh, the case of Dr. William Fisk, because there's actually a lot of similarities between the two cases. Both of these physicians were in their seventies. Both of the women who uh, approached them for illegal abortions were 18 years old. Both of the young women died and both of the men were trained medical professionals and so everything about these two cases was nearly identical in, in terms of the, the criteria, the time period. They're both in the 1930s. One's in Los Angeles, the other's in Hermosa Beach. And Dr. Fisk got probation. He did not have to spend any time in, in prison. And Dr. Marmillion was sentenced to seven years to life in prison. How would you explain that? Dr. Fisk was perhaps able to be a more sympathetic person to the jury. He argued that he felt really bad for the young woman, and so in her desperation, he tried to help her. And, you know, it was an all-white jury for, for Dr. Marmillion. and I don't know that they were able to see him as sympathetic as they were able to see Dr. Fisk. Both of these physicians became ill over the course of their trials. And, and Fisk really, I think, benefited from perhaps the jury members relating to him or, or seeing him as someone who was worthy of, of sympathy or pity. And there is this other element of, of Dr. Marmillion perhaps not being seen quite as favorably or as professionally as a trained medical professional in in the 1930s in Los Angeles. There was some racism and and segregation and discrimination inherent in the medical field in LA at this time. Um, And it really did make it more difficult for practitioners of medicine who were not white uh, to be able to practice and have the same type of recognition within the wider medical community in LA. So I think Dr. Marmillion had a few things kind of running against him that did not allow the jury to maybe see him with the same sympathy that they saw Dr. Fisk.
0: Does the Does the difference in his treatment say anything about the larger issues of contraception and black female sexuality in this
1: period of time? I think there could be something said about that, because when we're looking at, at birth control, particularly with the the black, uh, black community in the 20th century, there is a little bit of back and forth. You do have among some members of the middle and upper class of, of black society who want the kind of... "Quote unquote better members of their society to to have more children to this idea of like race betterment is is something that is not just within you know white Americans in the eugenics movement it is also in the black community as well this idea of racial progress and uplift and you know you do have Dr. Marmillion, who is a medical professional he brought capital with him to Los Angeles and you know, created jobs and opportunities for people when they were building his medical facility. And so I, I argue in the book that when we look at the different ways that the young women are described in the newspapers at this time, that there's a lot of emphasis on Vera Nelson, who is the, the young woman who dies after her operation with Dr. Fisk. People are going through her diary. They want to know who her paramours are. They, they want to know who is this young man back. And you know, what is going on with this young girl who has a terrible relationship with her mother? And it becomes this really, you know, sensational story about her and, you know, young women and delinquency in the city and, and all of these other things. But I, I argue that organs of the Black press did not have the liberty to personalize Margaret Scott quite in the same way. Because if they humanized her more, then it would have been detrimental to Dr. Marmillion that if they made a lot of attempts to to talk about her as a young eighteen year old girl um who, you know, where where was she going to school? What was her day like? Who were her friends? Was she bubbly? Was she sweet? Was she if they did any of that, it it would have essentially, made things worse for Dr. Mormillion. And we have this very insular community in Los Angeles at this time. And I really believe that they were trying to to salvage what they could with Dr. Mormillion, who for all other intents and purposes was a well-regarded member of the community. And so it seemed to me, um that maybe Margaret Scott was, was kind of sacrificed so that they could do what they could for Dr. Marmillian. That's, that's, that's interesting. Um, are there female abortion providers? There are. And, you know, one of the, the characters who comes up in the book, uh, in a couple chapters is a woman by the name of Laura Minor. And Laura Minor was, um, she was this woman uh, in San Diego. She she um, came to San Diego uh, after a long route from from Chicago. Her husband had you know tuberculosis, and she had to keep moving west to to keep herself and her children safe. Um, she ends up starting this as a side gig. Really, um, she's providing you know for herself for her children her husband is infirmed he doesn't really have many resources to send her way she is making most of her income from doing a bridge club in her home and then one day one of her bridge students approaches her and says that she has this problem and she doesn't know how to get out of it and laura miner Her husband had actually performed two abortions on her previously. Um, they could not afford to have children when he was ill and they decided to go that route and she happened to still have the medical equipment. And so she provided the procedure for this bridge student and she became a professional. Um, she ends up joining the Pacific coast abortion ring a little bit later. Um, she's technically just a nurse. Um, she does not have medical training. She eventually gets uh, a degree in, in, um, she eventually becomes a chiropractor. Um, but even though she's a nurse, she ends up being the one who's providing most of the treatments at the San Diego office while the physician who is supposed to be performing the abortions is playing golf all day. Um, she is, you know, this really interesting, she's the only woman who is the main abortionist in the Pacific coast abortion ring. Um, she ends up testifying for immunity in that particular case. And then, you know, after she finishes her degree, she goes back to practicing abortion and in the forties, she ends up getting arrested and she goes to Tehachapi prison for, for women. What's really interesting. And, and what's really exciting is just recently, um, Governor Gavin Newsom just posthumously pardoned her uh, just this November based on, on the research in the book. It was around the time that Californians, we were voting on um, Proposition 1, I believe. It was for reproductive justice in, in California. And so she was just posthumously pardoned. Uh, so he called me actually right, right. When he did it, oh, I, oh. I, um, you know, I, I just came home from work. I had a meeting and I was a little frustrated. And so I was chatting with my, my husband. He, he works from home on Fridays and I was like, hold on this, you know, this number I don't recognize is calling me. And so I answered it and I was like, hello. And then I just hear this voice, you know, is this Dr. Gutierrez Romine? I, yes hi, this is Governor Kevin Newsom. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> so I'm like wildly gesturing to my husband, like record this, you need to record this. And, and so it was really cool because he, he called me and he said, you know, I, I just wanted to let you know that I posthumously pardon Laura Minor. Thank you so much for your research on, uh, on this topic and for, you know, doing what you can to ensure reproductive justice for, you know, women in California. So. It's it's really cool to see that that actually happened as a result of the book. That is totally cool. <laughs> it,
0: it's nice to be reminded that our work actually
1: has tangible impact. It, yeah, definitely. And, you know, when when I wrote this, when I started writing, you know, the dissertation and the book, I had no idea that it was going to become quite as relevant as, as it is. And so it's this constant back and forth of, you know this is so relevant to the work that I'm doing and, and alternating between that and, you know, God, why don't, why don't people just read my book? (laughs) Of course. Uh, All right. Let's talk now about the Pacific coast abortion ring. Okay. So the Pacific coast abortion ring uh, is, you know, how I got into this topic and it's this, organization that was headquartered in Los Angeles, um, about 1935 to 1937 is kind of its rise and fall all sits right there. Uh, it was organized by a man named Reginald Rankin and Reginald Rankin is, is really this interesting person. You know, he had probably done some shady tax and real estate things in LA in the twenties. Um, he probably was involved in some type of political corruption, you know, bribery, things like that before. Um, but eventually he decides for, you know, I don't really know what caused him to, to decide to do this, but this was going to be his business next empire. And he wanted to create a, an abortion mill that would span all along the West Coast. He had this very grandiose vision for, for what this was going to be and so he had found dr george watts dr george watts was uh an abortion provider in uh, i think oregon i always get washington and oregon mixed up Uh, he's in one of those and he had dr george watts had been practicing abortions for some 40 years by this point and he was a really safe reputable provider he developed a um device called a vacuum aspiration method, and it allowed him to perform the procedures really hygienically. And so Reginald Rankin approached Dr. Watts and asked him if he wanted to to form an abortion empire with him. And, you know, George Watts could have retired at this point. He's an older man. He's He's been doing medicine for over 40 years by this point. So I don't know if it was a financial thing again, because we're, we're in the great depression era. I don't know if it was something that like reinvigorated him that, you know, this is something exciting that I could be part of it, it, you know, for some people, I imagine retirement feels like death, you know? And so he decides he wants to do this with Rankin. And so they end up getting another person to be their accountant. And the three are really the the backbone of this entire empire. They buy up and recruit, um, uh, you know, a- abortion offices and abortion providers all along the West Coast, California, Washington, and Oregon. They end up by the end of the ring having over thirty physicians in their employ, and they have all of these other people who are are getting a cut as well. So they have steerers. Usually, these are young women who they're hired to just go spread awareness that. They have offices that provide this. So in L.A., they had young women whose job was literally just to walk up and down Hollywood Avenue. And if they, you know, saw a young woman like, by the way, you know, I don't know you, but here's where you can get an abortion if you want one. And I'm sure they were probably a little bit more nuanced than that. But that was all they were supposed to do was just walking down uh, up and down Hollywood Avenue and and let women know that they could provide these services. And for every patient that they referred, they'd get a cut and they also had pharmacists who uh would you know get a cut as well if they referred different people so you know over 30 physicians and then plus all of these other people as well just their los angeles clinic was making the modern day equivalent of millions of dollars per month and they had you know a portland office they had a seattle office san francisco office san diego and you know so many more and it was becoming this this thing that that Reginald Rankin imagined and it it ends up kind of starting to fall apart around 1936 it's one of his doctors I think in Seattle is becoming a little bit too independent and um, you know he he kind of decides he wants to break apart from the ring and and not send part of his profits over to Reginald Rankin in LA and so it does cause this kind of power struggle and eventually Rankin allows this doctor to kind of break off. Um, but then he he wants revenge, Rankin. He wants to get back at them because he feels like he is lost out in this deal. And ultimately, you know, this this infighting is what leads to this this entire organization becoming well known. And um, it becomes part of this multi-agency task force that ends up breaking it down. They start raiding all of these offices and clinics, and there's two major trials that take place, one in San Francisco and one in Los Angeles. And most of the physicians and and Reginald Brinkin uh, and George Watts, they end up going to prison. On what charge? uh, On providing illegal abortions. And so what's really fascinating is that prior to this, most of the... Cases that involved sex- successful convictions for illegal abortions almost always involved a fatality. Um, it was really difficult to, to prove whether an illegal abortion had taken place. But if a woman died from the procedure, they were able to establish some of the parameters to, to figure out if it was legal or, or illegal. Um, But with this particular case, none of the women died. They had no fatalities that I was ever able to find for this particular rank. Um, But what they had was a mountain of evidence against all of these people. They had so many women who had survived that they were able to subpoena and testify. And, you know, the the fact that they were so well organized uh, and safe really does become their downfall because they have, medical documents for, for some of these people. And, you know, some of the women used fake names when they were, you know, going in, but, but some of them didn't. And so they were able to find some of these women who had these procedures, compel them to, to testify, coerce them to testify, threaten them with potential prosecution as well. And so you really just have a a lot of women who were able to say, yes, you know, I went to one of Rankin's offices and I have this procedure done and there's really just no denying we're escaping it. It really does become one of these massive, like trials of the century in Los Angeles. And so they go to prison and that is the end of the ring, right? It is technically the end of the ring, but it is not the end of the abortion industry for Rankin. Okay, tell Uh, us about that. So after Rankin gets out of prison, he tries to do another abortion mill in Nevada. Doesn't quite work that well. This one is is pretty much doomed from the start. He uh, made a friend while he was imprisoned. The friend got out a little bit earlier and was supposed to lay the groundwork for this new clinic. Um, and their very first patient becomes ill. Um, it becomes clear right away that that she had this procedure, and it was not even Rankin or or this other guy who performed it, Paul Cushing. Um, it was another woman that they brought in, Ruth Barnett, and she was supposed to be like the person on the ground who's performing these procedures. And so Ruth Barnett is, is the person who performs the procedure on this patient who becomes ill, but does not die. Um, and, and Rankin is not even, I don't think he's even in Nevada at this time that this is taking place. But because Ruth Barnett had performed the procedure as part of his little abortion enterprise, Rankin is on trial again and goes to prison again. And, you know, this one was not, uh, I think it was a little rushed. It wasn't as well organized. I don't think Rankin quite had his hand in the cookie jar as much for this uh, as some of his, you know, the Pacific Coast abortion ring. Um, so I don't know if he was rusty or just a little too too quick to, to get back in it. But he goes to prison in Nevada for, for a little bit. And by 1950, he's back in Southern California. And he has one more shot. He's going to try an illegal abortion ring one more time. And this time he finds one other doctor, Dr. Buffum, and he decides that the best route that, that they can go is to take advantage of Southern California's mobility, its geographic proximity to the border, car culture, all of these things are in play for this final, you know, abortion attempt for, for Rankin. And so they have an office in Long Beach, California, that's just a front. They organize, they, they meet with the women, they negotiate prices, they set up a date and time. And then they meet these women in a parking lot, a busy parking lot. So uh, oftentimes like grocery stores were were places that that they would meet. And then they were going to transport the women across the border into Tijuana, where they would have a physician in Tijuana perform the procedure. And then they would drive the women back to this um, nondescript parking lot. And then they would go their separate ways. And so it's really unique because theoretically they could just blend in with all of these other American tourists who are border crossing, who are taking advantage of, you know, the food and the entertainment in this border area. And these women, uh, the, the case, uh, that happens, people, v. it involves four women, uh, that they transported kind of in one batch. And three of the women ended up requiring hospitalization, and then it became clear that that this um, abortion had taken place, this illegal abortion has taken place. And what is so, I guess, kind of profound about this case is that they are initially convicted, uh, Reginald Rankin and Roy L. Buffum, and they appeal their case. And when they're appealing the case, it, it kind of becomes clear. California law can't regulate behaviors outside of the state of California. So the fact that these procedures took place in Mexico, it, it, it's not a violation of California law. And even though abortions were illegal in Mexico, in Mexico too, a California court can't convict them for violating Mexican law. And so they, they win their appeal. Um, the court recognized the limits of its judicial power. Um, this law cannot regulate behavior outside of the state. And so they win their appeal in, in 1953, and Reginald Raikin actually dies just two years later in 1955. Um, so I don't know that he truly gets to see kind of this abortion tourism industry that emerges um, in in california uh you know in southwest border towns before he passes away that's an interesting story isn't it (laughs) um just so fascinated by him you know and and he's hard to put your finger on you know he none of the women die in his procedures and so on one hand he's kind of this rogue figure. I mean, he did do some things that were not great. There was one abortion provider that he wanted to get into his realm and the abortion provider did not want to join the ring. And so Rankin actually kidnapped the secretary for a little bit to, to scare the the doctor into trying to join. Uh, you know, he bribed a lot of people. He would intimidate any of his competition or people who didn't want to join him. And so I'm not saying that he's the best guy. Um, but he does provide all of these women with safe procedures. And part of it is, I would imagine his own self-interest, right? He uh, wants to make sure everything is done as hygienically as possible for his own self-preservation. And, you know, what we also see is, you know, some of these women don't die because by the time we're in, you know, the 50s, we're understanding antibiotics and things like that. So we're able to kind of intervene before things really become septic. Um and so he's it, kind of hard to to decipher because on one hand you're like he's really progressive, and on the other hand it's like he's kind of a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> well, s- some of
0: this organization uh, reminds me of mafia style organizing, and I'm and I'm wondering if that in part um, contributes to the public perception. That these illegal procedures are are not just illegal, but somehow bound up with organized crime and exploitation of women and those
1: sorts of things. I mean, absolutely. I don't know that the idea for a coastwide abortion racket or syndicate would have been possible were it not for the Volstead Act and everything that kind of taught american criminals about how to operate in an illegal ring of some sort right but i think it's also very much about the type of crime that this is that this isn't well i guess there would be some people who disagree um but this isn't like murder in the sense that you know you're you're killing an adult or anything like that so it's not that type of crime it, it's a type of crime that's wound up in ideas of morality. Um, but that there is potentially still a, a middle class consumer that might want this type of illicit activity or service. So things like sex work, things like illegal drinking and gambling and abortion, they're not the same types of crimes as, you know, murder, theft, and robbery where there is a very clear victim and there's a very clear perpetrator. These are crimes that, you know, some people want you to just kind of cover your eyes a little bit because they still want to indulge or partake. They know it's not really great, but it's more of a moral issue than it is a criminal issue. How,
0: how is, um, the abortion practice moving over the border connected to the anxiety of the cold war? in the
1: 50s. So there is this concern about border security. There is this concern about potential nefarious influences on the United States. There's a lot of discussion, uh, you know, in the 1950s in particular about the border as this place that is susceptible to kind of foreigners coming in and and unsettling. So we have, I mean, for one hand, we have a lot of discussion about the border through things like the Bracero program, where we are aware that, you know, hundreds or thousands of illegal immigrants are coming across and are are coming into America and working. So we have that reality that we're contending with. We also have whatever racial questions might emerge from that as well, Uh, you have concerns about the border space itself as a zone of vice uh, where potentially American laurels are being corrupted, whether that is through gambling, drinking, sex work, abortion, whatever it might be. And so that coupled with, I think, this, this Cold War rhetoric about preserving family values or preserving an American way of life. And for many Americans, it, it's antithetical that women would want abortions and that there's something inherently wrong or problematic in that, especially if we're thinking of how this is tied to things like the baby boom and, you know, leave it to Bieber and all of these kind of middle-class ideals about maternity. And so I think a lot of that is is kind of wrapped into public perception about illegal abortion at this time. Uh, what about the people of the state of California versus Ballard? Ballard. Um, so Ballard was one of the cases I just mentioned it in passing. Um, Ballard was one of the cases where um, it's it's a precedent. For the Bellis case, I spent a little bit more time talking about the Bellis case, Uh, but the Ballard case was one of the precedents used to argue the Bellis case. And in the, I think I discussed Ballard with the Barbanel, um, these were cases that had already established that uh, certainty or immediacy of death as a requirement for a legal abortion would be a violation of a woman's constitutional right to life, since pregnancy does involve a a small risk of death as well, and so this was one of the case precedents um, that was argued. Um, I, I off the top of my head, I'm not remembering uh, Barbonell or Ballard. One of them. Um, one of them. There was a a woman who had polyps, and so the doctor believed that. Um, or sorry, that the doctor believed she would develop polyps if he did not perform the procedure. So he believed it was medically necessary. And then for the other case, it was a woman who um, a bunch of psychiatrists had argued that she was suicidal and so she needed the abortion. So these were two different cases where um, the question of certainty of death or of necessity were debated. And a physician argued that they had performed the procedure within the scope of their their medical practice as a, a rightful intervention, but those um, those decisions to perform the procedure came under scrutiny from outsiders. This is as these
0: procedures move into hospitals and you get therapeutic um, committees in hospitals making these decisions, right?
1: Yes. Yes. And so we start to see some of these um, cases that are really looking at Was this a justifiable reason? Was this a good justification? Was her life really at risk? Um, And so, I mean, it it is very analogous to, to what is going on today that we're seeing in some of these states that have begun to kind of rewrite these abortion restriction laws. And you have women who are being forced to carry to term pregnancies that are no longer viable or women who are being told, well, wait in the parking lot until your fever reaches, you know, 103 or 105, then we'll know your life is at risk. And then we could do the procedure. So it is, it's one of those things that kind of becomes complicated as we put more cooks in the kitchen, right? If we have just a, a medical doctor who's own judgment is trusted to perform the procedure within their own medical office, then that's it. But now that we have laws involved, now that we have doctors involved, now that we have hospitals involved, hospital administrators, hospital attorneys, they are are very concerned about the letter of the law and what that says and their own liability. And so often this puts women at risk and it comes down to these cases where a physician is being forced to defend themselves and the the actions that they have done does this lead to the legalization of abortion in california so the the final case that i i talk about in the book is the bellis case and the bellis case involved a uh, a licensed obgyn and he was a proponent of abortion liberalization he wanted the law to become much more liberal um but he himself was unwilling to perform the illegal abortion. So this couple approached him and instead he recommended them to an illegal provider, but one that he knew would perform the procedure well. Um, eventually this, this illegal provider's uh, office is is raided um, and it, it goes to trial. So Dr. Bellis is, is arrested for basically facilitating uh, these abortions. He is arrested for abortion conspiracy to commit abortion. And he argues, uh, this goes through a couple, you know, appeals, and it ends up in the California uh, Supreme Court. He argues that, you know, his his right to practice medicine is being violated, um, that the terms necessary to preserve life have no clear meaning, um, that he was performing within the scope of his uh, you know, medical practice to do this. And and ultimately, the California Supreme Court rules in his favor. Um, they receive amicus briefs from all of these other deans of medical schools that are saying, you know, when California created its abortion, its law against abortion in 1850, it was doing that to protect women from unlicensed providers. The law from 1850 said that it was illegal to perform an abortion, but it's said that this does not apply to medical professionals who, within the scope of their practice, believe it's necessary to perform the procedure. So in the 19th century version of the law, physicians were, were free to do what they needed um, to protect women. The only people who would be punished under the 19th century law in California were illegal providers, people who had no medical training. They were the ones who would be, be in trouble. So when does that change It sounds as if there's a change at some point, right? There are several. So 1850, 1872, uh, it's pretty much unchanged until 1935. And then that clause that says, unless this is a physician, it's gone. So now physicians could be subject to scrutiny after the, the 1935 revisions of the law. Do you have any idea what was driving those revisions in the 30s? I would imagine it has potentially something to do with the idea that maybe people are taking advantage of the provisions. Um, you see different things in some of the documents about physicians kind of calling each other out about, oh, you said excessive vomiting was a, a good reason for an abortion or, you know, suicide, really, that's a good reason. Um, so I think there internally are some debates. um, And then ultimately, that that leads to just that part of of the the law being dropped.
0: Uh This
1: has been a fascinating
0: and timely discussion. Thank you so much. And I know we've taken enough of your time. But before I let you go, can you give me some idea of what you're working on now?
1: Yes. So right now, I am just starting a new project. I I was supposed to start it when I had a research sabbatical in March of 2020, um, <laughs> and as you can imagine, uh, I did not get very much done. All of my research trips had to get canceled. Um, so uh, just last summer, I, I had a uh, research fellowship at the Huntington Library and. Um, I'm working now on a project that is looking at intersections of, of race and professional medicine in Southern California and the borderlands, uh, looking at the way that um, professional medical communities and organizations uh, in Southern California, Los Angeles, at borders, um, kind of racialize and and look at people of color. Um, how that kind of translates into public health legislation as well that is also a
0: very timely <laughs> topic is it not? Well I do love medical history oh. <laughs> well I shall let you go thank you so very much for thank this for having this me delightful conversation you are more than welcome thank you